This is Karen Hunter and welcome to The Hub. All right, welcome to another edition of In Class with Carr, Dr. Greg Carr. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, um, Professor Hunter. How you doing, sis? I'm sleepy. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. I, yeah. so let me just. I am. Let me say I am because I'm gonna speak it into creation. And I don't know. Are you watching Lovecraft Country? I am. Okay. We haven't talked about it. We haven't mm -hmm. really talked about it. But, Although you've been um, having some fascinating conversations with other people, I'm loving it. <laughs> um, our conversations about religion and you know Haiti last week. There was a scene where Ruby was talking. Uh, they were talking about casting spells or maybe it was Christina, casting spells. And she was telling Tick how to cast a spell. You know, you need intention. She said, first you need this, the right spirit, intention, words. It's not just, you don't cast uh, spells with words only. You need intention and then you need a body. And so I was thinking about how powerful that is, that, you know, today I got a, um, I got a box of books from your buddy, Dr. Paul Coates. Our buddy, and the man. Yeah, I, lo I love the fact that y'all, mm, yes, yes. Thank you. So let me thank, thank you, thank you. Um, thank you. In the you book, I felt like it was Christmas. And then <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm opening it, Doc, I'm saying, when will I have time to read all of this? So in, in the, among all of the Carter G. Woodson stuff, which you see, Carter G. Woodson, the complete collection, which yep. we're going to have as part of our book club series in 2021, I'm speaking that with words, with intention, in their bodies. Absolutely. Right. And there was this book. Right. Oh yeah, Reginald oh, Lewis, of oh, course. Ah, 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 ah. This is my book. Oops, upside down. This is my. Yes. I've had this book since 1980. Hmm, 1991. I've had yeah. this book since 1991. I got to interview him uh, when I was at the New York Daily News, and wow. Um, uh, for Emerge Magazine, so it wasn't even for the news. For Emerge, like this. George like, was George Curry back in the day. Black press. Yes, um, Merge Magazine, wow. and he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And so I have, I've had this book on my shelf for a while. And then I open it, and I'm like, "What is God telling me? What does Paul Coates have to do with it? What? No okay, question. no question. And then the Baltimore also, story. <laughs> oh, is this mm. book? Mm. Like, oh yeah, Francis Chris Wilson. We need, oh, we need my Francis. Yes, today. Yeah, Paul and uh, Ray Wimbush in Morgan State. They put that together. Yes. Francis Cress Wilson and Neely Fuller say, if you don't understand white supremacy, how it operates, how everything else you think you understand will only confuse you. <laughs> That's right. So All as I'm looking at the 30 plus books that I have to now read, when I said, so I said, when will I have time? But I'm like, we practice alchemy here. We're going to magically create the time because I have intention and I have words in a body, we're going to make it happen. So Well, probably, you know, you, you're a teacher and you know how it is. A lot of it is about having the resources. And that's the central thing I love so much about our conversations over the months now that we've been, you know, going strong. Folks are getting books. And even if you don't, aren't able to sit down and read the book cover to cover in one sitting, you have the book now. Building home libraries was something we always did. And I'm sure, you know, we both experienced folks knocking at the door and you know, folks buying, putting a little money on those world book encyclopedias. You get one volume, you get, build the home library. So even if, you know, so when you're thinking about it, well, you know, let me pull this off the shelf. That's how we do. 
that's it. I mean, there's so many people who are like, how do I, you know, and it becomes daunting because I felt a little overwhelmed when I, because I'm like, which one do I start with? How do I start? You know, I was, I was like getting overwhelmed and excited because I'm like, I want to read all of them right now. I want to just not do anything today. <laughs> And then yeah. I was like, okay, you have time. You have time. And you have time. Gotta pay and I appreciate you have that. Time. All right. yeah. There is speaking of time. We are in a time. And, uh, you know, I, I, we were going to, we, we are, hopefully we'll get to the African uh, part of this uh, lesson plan today. But I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the state of our union and uh, having a sitting president target uh, a sitting governor. Uh, through Twitter and through words at rallies and, you know, uh, having, and I can't call them militia because uh, no. that's not the Second Amendment. No, this They're is not, not a lawful These are domestic terrorists. These are terrorists. Um, my man, Malcolm, Malcolm, uh, now I can't think his name. Malcolm Nance. Nance. Called, them, yes. called them vanilla ISIS today. Um, yeah, which, yeah, because that's why I, I called him the other night. We, we were on rolling show and he was talking after he got out. I said, yeah, it's vanilla ISIS. And then they tried to say that being anti uh, anti uh, Muslim, and I said only if you equate Islam with ISIS. Do you understand that Islam is to ISIS as the Klan is to Christianity? In fact, the only media in the world that I'm aware of that consistently still refers to ISIS is the United States media. Everybody else calls them Daesh, which is which is like an insult word. So if you hear uh, hear the French or you hear anybody in Africa or the so-called Middle East when they're reporting on them, they say Daesh because that's a word out of the Arabic that really says you people are narrow-minded and intolerant and you're violent in pursuit of that narrow-mindedness and intolerance. Only in the United States are they calling them ISIS because the United States, uh, particularly those who are white nationalists, and I'm talking about even the soft white nationalists. I'm not talking about people who say I'm against the Klan. Yeah, you are against the Klan. So why do you keep saying ISIS? Why? Because somewhere in the back of your mind, all Muslims are terrorists. So no, ISIS, <laughs> ISIS is not about Islam any more than the Klan is about Christianity, unless you want it to be. So yeah, Malcolm is right. Vanilla ISIS. That's what they are. <laughs> they are vanilla. Yeah, yeah. They're with the Klan and everybody else. And somebody said, well, you know, one of them is an anarchist. He doesn't like Trump either. Yes, because he doesn't think Trump has gone far enough. Do you understand that for some of these people, even Trumpism isn't far enough? And the Second Amendment is funny because as we were talking, you know, the ancestors don't make any mistake because y'all, we didn't sketch this out. Like you say, we have time. I pulled um, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, who uh, has written some very important stuff on Aboriginal people. You, you may, may have even interviewed her. This is her little book called Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. <laughs> and what she does, what Roxanne uh, Dunbar Ortiz does in this book is talk about the fact that the Second Amendment right to bear arms, I'll even read it from the back. She says that the, the, the purpose is to talk, she talks about the connection between the arming of the earliest Anglo settlers, that's number one. So they came here with guns. In fact, they came to Africa with guns. In fact, they came everywhere with guns. First thing they got is the guns, then they leave. That technology, which was available to the Chinese, which is available to the Africans who have been smelting iron, only out of one particular place in the world did people decide to figure out a way to combine iron, uh, to combine metal uh, technology with gunpowder technology to create projectiles to aim at other human beings. So shout out to Western civilization. That, that's, the, that's the kind of thing the Proud Boys and Richard Spencer are all proud of. Yes, yeah, y'all did do that. Y'all did that. So at any rate, Roxana Dunbar-Ortiz says that, you know, the army of the earliest Anglo settlers, modern day policing, 
and the persistence of white supremacy as a political force. So the Second Amendment, people say, well, it was about them because they didn't have a standing army in the British. Nah, nah, chief. Guess because, you know, I, te I keep this close. This is the Constitution of the United States with the Second Amendment because, you know, I teach over at the law school and then you'd be amazed. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't, of course. Most men, some people might be amazed at how few people have read the Constitution. And my Second Amendment rights. Do you know the history of the Second Amendment? No, but, but Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and the thing I like about this book is it's short, it's, it's written in a journalistic style. She's writing in the kind of style that you uh, mastered writing in, Karen. In other words, that you teach your students as well. I'll absorb all this stuff, and then I'm gonna put it somewhere where folks can just kind of pick it up and go through it and kind of get it, and then they can go and do more work. But I'm gonna distill this for you. So load it to the point that you're raising, no, of course they're not a militia, but they are absolutely in the tradition of American history. That's what they do, get their gun. So what do we, I, I don't know. And I was going through my mind just off the top of my head. I was like, okay, we, we interned Japanese under FDR. That was federally mm -hmm. sanctioned. We snatched children out of homes, Native American children and re-educated them, yes. which was government sanctioned, put them in boarding schools. We, of course, you know, there's bondage and enslavement because I was like, when Woodrow Wilson uh, was, was sitting president when he uh, screened Birth of a Nation and said it was a great movie, uh, the propaganda film that uh, codified the denigration of blackness in this country. When we had a president basically say, uh, liberate a state, you got my back. You know, you got my backing. And then when they do it, there's a sheriff who was at one of their rallies who said, you know, when he was questioned about, you know, you have been seen with these people. He was like, well, they're innocent until proven guilty, which is a fact under law. But this is the FBI, which you and I know. The FBI, they're crossing their T's and dotting their I's. They're not just running in half cop. And then he said something interesting. They were going in to perhaps arrest her. Did you he hear that? Like, I'm like, Oh, so we can do that? Can we just, yeah, this, we find this, that there's a tyrant in office, can we go and make a citizen's arrest? We ain't white, and you're not a white man. <laughs> you're not even a man. I mean, so you got the double, <laughs> you burn, you know, and well, let me not say that because that's a problem too. That's, that's a conceptual trap as far as I'm concerned. This whole idea that somehow black women or black men have it worse than each other. No. White supremacy operates along gendered fields of violences. At the center of white supremacy is white maleness. And white femaleness is on the periphery of that, but together it forms white supremacy. So a black woman is, may experience it differently than a black man, but trust, that difference isn't in a hierarchical relationship. It's not like there's a center of white maleness, then a periphery of white femaleness, because, and then a, and then a periphery of, of black maleness, and then a periphery of black female. Stop, can't think about it hierarchically, because you got some people, this is the challenge I have sometimes with this, this concept of intersectionality. It's almost as if there's white maleness at the center, and then black maleness at the center, and then this universe of femaleness some kind of way where white women and black, no, no, no. That's why I'm glad you raised that book that, uh, that Ray and them put together, the Osiris Papers. If you don't stand white supremacy, it's gonna confuse you. We can't do what they do. I'm gonna take it one step further. I'm gonna take it one step. Um, yesterday I was watching my Twitter feed and there's an uprising right now, protest in Nigeria. Yes. Around police brutality. Yes. It looks very similar to us here. Yes. And they're all black. Of and course. I was thinking, and, and, and it's not white supremacy. 
Not well, nothing, so, and, I, and I, I feel like, you know, all language needs to be changed. I had um, Hassan Jeffries on my show this week. And yes. he was uh, Ohio State. And he said something that I was like, oh, every day I'm getting rocked in my, at my core. He said, we train young people in school to idolize rapists and, pe and people who've held people in bondage, enslavers, yeah. right? So George Washington cut down the cherry tree. He's, you know, idolized you know, myth mythologically, you know, mythologically, you know, the father of our country, Thomas Jefferson, who owned more than 600 people, raped, of course, had children that he kept in bondage. So by the time we start to examine slavery, in our minds as young people, it's hard for us to conceive that these men were evil or That's bad right. people. That's and right. I think similarly, a, a nation like Nigeria, colonized by Western uh, folk at some point, right? So I'm thinking, what, what, as you're doing the Zen diagram around what white nationalism is, whatever that is, whiteness. Let's just call it right. whiteness. Call the white. of, but the whiteness is an ideology that that when black people are in police forces, many of them follow suit. When they're in the military, it, it, their black skin does not allow them to see Freddie Gray as a human being. Nope. Most of those police officers in Baltimore were black and they gave, right. they broke that brother's neck. So I'm looking at Nigeria and I'm saying, hmm, they're all black, but they're operating under this white mentality of brutality. Because the policing system, you said this last week, there was no word for prison. Right. You know, in African culture, in, in Africa's a big continent, but there's no word for it because it's community or not community. Either That's you're right. in community or you're banished from community. We're not going right. to put you in a prison where we can look at you, get out because That's you're right. toxic to what we're, we're trying to create here. And I think conversely, policing is a Western construct. Exactly. That, that was foisted onto these Nigerians to the point where they indoctrinated this whiteness into their culture. Yes. Nigerian culture. So I just, you know, I just wanted to say that because as we're having this conversation and I'm sussing through like, how is it because it, it is confusing when we start talking about this because there are black people that show up similarly but they have been indoctrinated with whiteness and i no think question. the breakdown has to be in this notion of whiteness that doesn't even exist that's this exactly is what people right are fighting for and fighting against or does exist in our minds as you said we behave as if it exists so it exists i mean you you just laid that out i mean you know and, and there will be people who hear this and say well Y'all acting like black people always did right. No, not at all. Don't get confused. Again, I love this. Francis Cress Welsing, you know, I knew Francis Cress Welsing well, you know, and I think about the elder who she used to talk to all the time and with brother who's still alive, Neely Fuller. Um, Neely Fuller, she says, it was Neely Fuller who first said that to me. And then I took it and ran with it. The idea that if you don't understand white supremacy, everything else you think you understand will only confuse you. I mean, so people say, well, you act like black people. No, no, no. Were, were there conflicts in Africa? There are conflicts all over the world. Human conflict is as old as human beings. The question is, how do you resolve conflict? So the idea that you would have a standing force of human beings in your community whose job is to go out and make you behave according to some piece of paper that somebody wrote is difficult to conceive in a lot of cultures because ultimately, particularly when those people do not emerge out of any consensus on what a community should be, when they don't emerge out of that, then what you see is ultimately those people can, can really kind of self-populate with folks who have a certain attitude toward the other people in the community. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't even say that language, you're absolutely right. There is no community. 
in the settler state we call the United States. The United States is a settler colony with a number of different communities that were, that were drawn into it. The people who were here already, who were not one community, who were forced into one label, Indians. The people from Europe who were drawn into it, who were not part of one community, who then received some, another label, white, that, in it, that is populated with the field of violence. And then all of us who are drawn into it, who are not the same people, who get given another label, black. And then somehow you want people want to act like, okay, now it's we. I, I know we. I'm like Malcolm X. He said, our government. Negro, it's like, you talking about our astronauts. <laughs> then we even let you near the place where the rocket went off. You about our, our Navy. And then Malcolm says, that's a Negro that's out of his mind. In other words, when did this we attach? But you've explained how the we attached. The we attached through education. So when you're talking about, for example, the idea of the Native Americans, let me see if I got something around here to talk about. Ah, yes. <laughs> Those Native American schools. My goodness. 1879, right? Captain Richard Henry Platt. This is U.S. Army. Now, mind you, he think he's doing the Native Americans a favor. 1879 is 12 years after the founding of Howard University, where I work. Oliver Otis Howard thought he was doing the Black folk a favor, even as he was chasing Chief Seattle all the way to the Pacific Ocean. In other words, you in the military, which means now you fighting the Native Americans. Now, yes, you were the Christian general and you were a little nicer about it. And yes, you were over the Freedmen's Bureau and you were a little nicer about it. But make no mistake, you're still an open enemy of Africans and Native Americans. I don't give a damn how many times you read the Bible or how much you praying to do what you, you still have in your mind, you're better than these other human beings. And you're in the military, which means you're the police. Now, people go say, well, no, police aren't the military. Everybody calm down. Using the police in a very large conceptual way. In other words, a standing force to regulate this society that, with people populating it who did not come from the society that they're exacting this violence on. This is the concept, settler violence. This is what Roxana Dor uh, 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 Ortiz is talking about. When you arm Europeans and, and bring them into this thing, the attitude is, y'all are human, so here's a gun. Then the Black people and Native Americans like, but we him too, give us a gun. No, 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 no. This thing only works if we arm the people who we say are human. You can't have no gun. You might turn that gun on us. And plus, you're not human anyway. So anyway, so 12 years after Howard is founded, 1879, two years before Tuskegee is founded by Booker T. Washington. But Booker T. Washington went to school at Hampton. Hampton is started by a buddy of General Howard's named Samuel Chapman Armstrong, who says, we got to civilize these Indians and these Blacks, these Negroes. We got to civilize them. In other words, you know, they're never going to be us. We are superior. And when you read Samuel Chapman Armstrong's correspondence and the things he said, we're better than them. We're human. But if you give them a century or two, you know, they can at least be human. But we got to train them. They got to stop doing all this other thing they were doing and become us. So you got Howard, General Oliver Howard. You got Samuel Chapman Armstrong at Hampton. You got Clinton B. Fisk, that's Fisk University. You got the white uh, missionaries like the Atlanta, uh, the, the American Baptist Home Mission. Uh, at one time, they were run by a dude named Henry Morehouse. You got the Rockefellers who say, we're going to do this for these young black girls. Yeah, so they, they, they start a little school. They, well, they give a little money to a school black people had started. And then they named that, they renamed that school or named the school for a daughter of the Rockefellers, Laura, uh, her middle name, Spellman. Rockefeller. In other words, what we're going to do, <laughs> we're going to help these Negroes by shaping the way. So in 1879, Captain Richard Henry Platt says, we're going to do it for the Indians. And his school, the one that starts these over 150 so-called Indian schools, is Carlisle. <laughs> There's the book, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. 
Now this school, if anybody has heard of it, they haven't heard of it for the academics. They probably heard of it because the greatest or the best known graduate of Carlisle Indian School, industrial school, that's important because a lot of these people, some of the people I named like, like Howard and them, Howard did not agree with Armstrong philosophically on how you shape these minds. They had different ideas. So what emerges is the Howard concept, which eventually you can call almost, James Anderson does this in his book, The uh, Education of Blacks in the South. He talks about the Howard Fisk Atlanta University concept, liberal arts. So let's give them a curriculum that's going to humanize them. Heavy on Greek, Latin, mathematics. This is the stuff those early blacks, even the black people who started their own schools, like uh, the AME Church, Wilberforce, Paul Quinn. One thing about the AMEs, they named their they schools for black people with the exception of Wilberforce. So Paul Quinn, Richard Allen, we talked about Dave Chappelle's grandfather, all that down at the Allen University, all this kind of thing, where, by the way, shout out to Lindsey Graham. We know what you're doing, baby. It ain't about, you know, because if you take that test, that means he got COVID. You can't have the judicial hearing. So Mitch McConnell has put the word out. Nobody take a COVID test. Because if the people on the Judiciary Committee have COVID, that means we can't have the hearing to confirm this ultra-right uh, handmaiden's tale judge we want to put on the Supreme Court. So Lindsey can't take no test. Shout out to Jamie Harris. reason I said because the only debate they will probably have in South Carolina, because he canceled the one supposed to be yesterday, was at Allen University, AME Church, Richard Allen, all this kind of thing, right? So the AMEs, at least they named theirs for Black people, but the curriculum was the same. They ain't teaching Black stuff. Greek, Latin, mathematics. Du Bois went to Wilberforce to teach this, these, these subjects. So that's the Howard and them idea. That's how we're going to civilize them. The other side, this is Armstrong and them. No, you know what they need? They need moral education. They need, they need to read the Bible. They need hard labor to shape their character. And then we'll teach them enough reading and writing so they don't cut nobody's fingers off. Because what we're going to create is this normal school concept and this common school concept. The normal school was the school where you train teachers, black teachers, to then go to the common school and get the little children and stuff and pass this on. So in other words, bust your tail, get out there and do some work. Now pause. Remember what Jesus said. In other words, this whole concept, <laughs> we're going to reshape their minds. So anyway, I still like to say that the Carlisle School built on a similar concept. The one graduate of the Carlisle School that people may be familiar with was not, is, not distinct, is not known for any academics, is not known for any uh, intellectual prowess, although that's not to say he wasn't very smart or that he you know, didn't do his work. He's known for his athletic prowess because Carlisle had one of the country's great football teams. And this guy was a star on the Carlisle football team. His people came from Oklahoma. He, uh, they gave him, a, uh, gave him a, a, a European name because, oh, this is the famous quote of, uh, of Captain Richard Henry Pratt. Richard Henry Pratt said, you must kill the Indian to save the man. So in other words, they made them cut their hair. They made them lose their Native American names. They gave them this hardcore white curriculum. In other words, you gotta, we got to kill the Indian, meaning what? We can't kill all y'all physically yet, but we're going to kill you mentally and intellectually. We're going to take your culture away from you. So this young man who showed up at Carlisle, not only played football, he ran track, champion in track. Not only ran track, played baseball, champion baseball player. In fact, went to the Olympics. It was 1912 when he won all the medals, won the decathlon, all this. You know him. He's the graduate of Carlisle, the one Indian that people don't use by Indian name. I'm going to use the Indian because that's the lady. His initials are JT. 
And then he picked up some spare change playing professional football and he took all his Olympic medals. And he never got them back. I'm gonna say his name. You like, oh yeah, Jim Thorpe. <laughs> Jim Thorpe was an all-American football. Yeah, Jim Thorpe was Native American. <laughs> yes, and then you know who played him in the movie? It's the 1950s. Burt Lancaster in what we call maybe red face. <laughs> played Jim Thorpe, all-American. He was an all-American football player. Jim Thorpe came about 15 minutes later than Paul Robeson at Rutgers. And Jim Thorpe was known for a time as the greatest American athlete. But American is only a label. Jim Thorpe was an aboriginal who went to Carlisle Indian School, and the objective of Carlisle was to kill the Indian, just like the objective of Howard and Hampton and all the rest of them, is to kill any African stuff still remaining and civilize these Negroes. <laughs> you understand? So I'm saying not to say that you explain to us, Karen, why we think the way we think. It begins and ends with the education system. And when we get to 2020, and some of our scholars and curriculum writers and folks who are doing education say, you know, we need to be included in American history. Be very careful about that. Because do you really want to be included in a, in a criminal enterprise? Or are you trying to rethink the entire enterprise? Those are two very different things. So when you mention the American, the presidents, for example, you know, a president is not only the head of the federal or the executive branch of the federal government, although it's been very clear uh, that, you know, forget next month, the American experiment in terms of government, federal government, has been completely exposed. We can thank Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Party for that because it's an illusion. There are not three branches of government anytime the executive branch can reach out to somebody in the branch that by statute isn't able to do it, and he can tell his toady, Bill Barr, and tell these other people, you know what? I want you to arrest Joe Biden. I want you to arrest Barack Obama. Now, yo, he's just talking, he's just talking. Yeah, but what has the Department of Justice, what did they just do a couple of days ago? They turn around and say, you know what? I know there's a kind of a rule that we've kind of made an agreement more than a rule, that we don't do any investigations on election fraud and stuff this close to an election. But now they're saying, yeah, we're gonna look into, you know, we're lifting that rule. They are weaponizing, they've weaponized the Department of Justice. So if there were rules, if there were laws, they couldn't do that. And then what happens? Trump, with whatever is eating his brain before he got COVID, now weaponized by those, uh, uh, those steroids, we're not gonna negotiate, cancel it. Then a day later, okay, fine, uh, 1.8 billion. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell is like, and what is McConnell doing? McConnell is like, look, I'm not, I'm not going over there. McConnell had polio as a kid. Sure, he's going to be those. I'm not going over there. Dude, you part of it too. You already part of it. But look at how they talk to each other. You are in a separate branch of government. You're the legislative branch. How you take your orders or coordinating with the executive branch? Do y'all understand that this ain't nothing but what did, uh, what did Gil Scott Heron say in Winter in America? The Constitution? You know, I, yeah, I, I, I hear him in my head. So if you don't mind, he says, the Constitution, a noble piece of paper. <laughs> That's all it is. It is a noble piece of paper. The people make a society. So to tie it all together, and we continue. The Wait, but let me just let me just also underline. Not only does this president have control over the Senate, but also the judiciary. Absolutely. So the equal co-equal branches separate and independent, 
checks and balances. There are no checks or balances in this current administration, and that's been exposed as well. The courts are packed up and down. Appellate, all of, all of the courts are packed because the previous administration wanted to put qualified people in those seats, didn't understand what the game is. The game right. numbers and power. They didn't get that. They respected that piece of paper, that, that constitution that you held up. This administration does not respect it. They don't no. give a damn. They don't give a damn, except when it comes time to, for, for other people, to apply to other people. See the thing, and this is how the trick works. They want us to go by this, but they don't go by it. This is why, you know, shout out to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and them. See, there ain't no rules. Y'all think y'all in a boxing match where there's a referee and you can win on points. No, there is no referee. And actually there is a referee. They picked the referee. You got to knock these people out. They not, they don't care. And then when you come, when they, they give you this and they tell you, yeah, you got to go by this, which is why it's interesting, Karen, that you mentioned the, uh, the special anti-robbery squad the so-called SARS squad in Nigeria. Because what the Africans have done, because of colonialism, you know, these Europeans come in, they're gonna colonize the whole African continent. So what they do when they come, there are two forms, in fact, oh man, if I could pull it quick, I would, but I'm not, I'm gonna resist the urge to get up because I'm not sure. We'll we'll oh wait, no, we'll I can pull it quick, here it is. I can resist the urge when I don't know where it is, but sometimes they're right close. Ancestors don't make no mistake. This is Frederick Lugard. This is an old school book. Y'all go look at this book. It's called The Dual Mandate I'm in British that Tropical Africa. Why the hell do you get no, that, no, book? Actually, that book? Actually, actually, your friend Paul Coates, he just has a little background. Y'all probably, probably talked about this. I think he did. No, 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 no. Actually, he reprinted the one by Lugard's wife. Ancestors are funny. Paul Coates, you know, we, I'm sure y'all, you know, for the rest of y'all know a little background. Paul Coates from Philly, West Philly, uh, joined the Panther Party in Baltimore. We talked about him last week when we went live, right? Paul worked at Moreland Spingarn, which is the second largest research repository on Africana in the country. The first is Schomburg. And a lot of stuff in Schomburg, oh, the devil's trying to stop us. No, that's all right. The devil's trying to stop us. It's all good. You can't stop us. We can't be stopped. But at any rate, um, the Schomburg is number one. Moreland Spingarn has a lot of stuff Schomburg doesn't have and vice versa. So they kind of work in tandem. You know, our, and, and we need our black archives to have our stuff. I mean, I'm glad stuff is preserved other places, but we need the black churches, the black civic organizations, the black colleges, the black high schools whose stuff got thrown away after integration. All this stuff, we need to collect this stuff. So anyway, Paul worked at Howard for a number of years in the archives. So he's trained in terms of archival research and scholarship. In fact, one of the benefits at that time of working at Howard is that your children can go to Howard at reduced uh, price or free. One reason why his children went to Howard, including a young brother named Tanahasi, his son, who when you read Between the World and Me would be sitting in the reading room of the place where his father worked, reading those books that inspired him to go and do. So he's in the library, when, when he writes in uh, Between the World and Me, I was in the library. Yeah, that's where Moreland Spingarn was, where his pop was working. Then Paul goes into selling books on the campus of Howard. You had a folding table, set it out there right across from Crampton Auditorium. He's selling books. Then he says, you know what? A lot of these books out of print. I need to get into this. So in 1978, he starts a company that he calls a very new press with some very old ideas. That press 
the one that's published that is now going into business with Car G. Woods Association, the one with those books behind, Sister Karen there, everybody watching on your left, on her right, all those Car G. Woodson books stuff. That's published Black Classic Press. That's what, so he says, we got to bring these books back. So he didn't republish this one yet. However, Lord Lugard, Frederick, I'm going to call him Lord Lugard, Frederick Lugard, he got the lordship from the British. Frederick Lugard was the military man that the British dispatched to West Africa. Wait, to... this is a black man? Oh, no. White? Oh, of course he's white. Oh, These okay. are all white people. Okay. Oh, yeah, Frederick oh. Lugard, uh, this was written in 1922. But Frederick Lugard was sent to West Africa to set up the federal protectorate that becomes the colony we now know as Nigeria. But also all, all English-speaking West Africa. He also goes into East Africa. Sir Harry Johnson is another one. He did the colonization of Africa by alien races. I got that around here somewhere. It ain't never been republished. That's an old, old book. Anyway, these are white boys who went into Africa to basically rob Africa of its material resources, but they got to educate, meaning colonize the minds, to borrow from Ngugi Watiango, the Kenyan writer, of these Africans to get them into a, be a good workforce. The French are doing it. The English are doing it. So. Lugard's wife, however, Flora Shaw Lugard, decides while she there, she want to know about the history because, you know, she's looking at them like, yeah, I know we're going to make them into good subjects of the British crown and they're going to work for us. But I know they must have had a history before we came. So, you know, Frederick Lugard, whatever, knock yourself out. Flora Shaw Lugard goes to find out. So she started asking and she writes a big book that Paul did republish called A Tropical Dependency. She gonna write the history of these Africans before the Lugards and they white supremacist crew show up. So yeah, so yeah, this one's out of print, but here's the beautiful thing finally about Paul, William Paul Coates and Black Classic Press. Paul Coates and Black Classic Press own the printers. In other words, they, when they wanna publish a book, they press a button. In other words, they ain't got to go nowhere and contract out with anybody because Paul's thing is, like your thing, Karen, we got to build Black institutions that have the capability of doing everything we need to have done. We have a meeting, we need this, we need this, we need this. And then you match it up with the list of what we have to send out for. Oh, the list of what we want to do and the list of what we can do, matched. So let's go to work. So yes, you can get Flora Shaw Lugard's book, which is the most important of the two books that you got to pick get a tropical dependency. But the reason I had this book over here, just happened to be in this one of these piles over here on Africa, what the British did was different than what the French did. What the British did, you can call direct rule. What the French, I'm sorry, what the British did, you can call indirect rule. What the French did is what they call direct rule. Here's the difference. The French come in, they want everybody they set foot on, Togo, Benin, you know, they want to do, they want to make them French in mind. They want to teach them French, they want to talk about, you know, the French history like it's their history. And they, they fight back, ultimately. That's where you get Seiko Touré. That's where you get uh, Leopold Senghor. I mean, Negritude, all this. But the British thing is, we're not coming down here. First of all, this is dangerous. Because up until the 1860s, they called Africa white people, Europeans called it the white man's grave because they didn't have no cure for malaria. So just like when they came over this side of the hemisphere and a lot of the Native Americans ended up dying because of disease, when they went to Africa, they were dying from disease because they didn't have the immune system, that, the same thing that triggers our sickle cell, for example. 
in, in, in a tropical climate and something like that, that's actually something that was developed in a way to help human immunity. But the Europeans come into the space and it's killing them. It took them to the 1860s to come up, I guess it's quinine or they had some, you know, they, they, they invented, they created something, they discovered something rather. They didn't invent anything. All this stuff is in nature. They, they, they found something that would able to protect them. Then they can go in and penetrate. But here, what Lugard chronicles here is what the British call direct rule. I'm sorry, what the British call indirect rule. I keep being confused. French, Francophone, that is direct. They're going to put France in our minds, the language, the history, the culture. And if you ever go into any Francophone African country or encounter any Francophone African, you often see these Negroes talk about Paris like they were from, they from there. <laughs> I mean, even the ones that they, they, the French thing is heavy in their minds. The British said, no, 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 no. That don't make no sense. Why would we, first of all, we can't really live down here and it's too hot. We like that dreary gray stuff. You know, this food is too spicy. Why? Because, you know, we don't talk about fine British cuisine. We don't talk about fine British dining. Why? Because among the Europeans, the British are considered the least cultured. You know what I'm saying? Where's their musical tradition? I mean, that's why they love Shakespeare so much. He's the first one to show up and give them something that they could put them on par with the French and the Italians. And if everybody got some hookup, and then the British said, yeah, but there's one thing we got that y'all ain't got like we got. What's that? The guns. And that's why when you see the English come last, they roll with force. There's a whole rack of books on this stuff in terms of culture. There's a book called Globish, how English became the language of, of the world. Uh, they're, they're number. Think about the English language, which is a car crash between like Latin and the Germanic languages, doesn't have a lot of compound words in it, relatively speaking. So they got guns like, they got words like guns, fist, stick, heart, rock. But many of the words that we use, that we think are English, are really French, <laughs> are really Latin-based words that come into the English language as a result of the fact that the Gauls colonized England for a long time. So they've been in this colonization, but let me not get too far afield and that was a footnote. The point is that this is how indirect rule works, the British model. They come into what they call the Gold Coast, now we call Ghana. They come into the federal protected Nigeria, what we now call Nigeria. And they say, we're not getting rid of your traditional society. This is what we're gonna do. Bring the chiefs to the meeting with us. And we're gonna say, look, we're gonna call y'all chiefs or whatever, y'all. But that's not my, I don't care what your name is. I don't even, I don't wanna speak your language. I don't care, my wife says she wanna study y'all, but I, whatever, here's the thing. Y'all go back out there and do what you've been doing. But twice a year, bring us our money. It's called indirect rule. So ends up, so what ends up happening is to the people who just out there living, they still see the queen mothers, they still see the Asantahini in them. Now every once in a while, now here's the problem the British have though. These Africans is like, all right, at the meeting, we went to the meeting, yeah, okay, what y'all think? I don't know why we was all sitting there talking while you was talking to them. I was counting the guns they had. I saw how many boats they had on the ship. We can take them. <laughs> so you know what happens ends up happening is as colonialism expands, those who are closest to the shore, the Ga, the Fanti in places like uh, 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 places like Ghana, uh, in Southern Africa, the Kosa people, for example, who are closest to where they pull up Cape Town, that kind of thing. You know, they are resisting, but part of it is they're trying to halfway be compliant, but they're also resisting. So their resistance is gonna look different. But the farther inland you go, the more these Africans is like, we could take them, we could take them. Which is why to this day in Ghana, there's sometimes tensions because the Ashantis, 
They up in Kumasi, they fight like seven wars <laughs> with the British. You got to take us. Finally, the siege of Kumasi around the same time that this Indian school is being founded in the United States, these, uh, their cousins in England are down there fighting in Ashanti land versus the Ashanti. And at the seventh war, when the Ashanti generals get together, like, I don't know, man, they got our capital under siege. It's a siege. The sister from Ejiso comes in, the queen mother, because in the Ashanti tradition, the queen mothers pick the king. I mean, then people talk about gender. It's a whole different thing. We start talking about African people. We still have echoes of it because if you got a black preacher at a church that the women don't like in the church, he's gone. In other words, you still, you got to look at our institutions through the lenses of blackness. If you don't, you won't even know what you're looking at. Like Francis Wilson said, it'll only confuse you. But at any rate, this sister comes to the meeting and is like, look, there's a famous speech she gives. Ghanaian school children learn this. Yasantiwa is her name. That's my, that's, my, that's my niece's name, my oldest niece. Uh, my, my, brother and, my brother and sister-in-law named her after Yasantiwa of the Ashanti because she comes to the meeting where these generals are considering what well, she negotiated. And she, she gives this famous speech like, oh, you men of Ashanti, I never thought the day that you would not, that the day would come when you would not long for the return of the Asantehini, meaning, you know, our brother who they took into exile, Primpy. They, they sent him to the Seychelles Islands. So she comes in and says, look, if y'all don't want to fight the British tomorrow, no problem. No problem. Uh, you all stay here. Y'all make sure the food is, is ready for the children. You make sure the fields have been prepared and all this kind of thing. In the morning, myself and the women of Ashanti will be on the battlefield against the British. And when we win and come back, you are no longer welcome in our beds. This is the speech <laughs> that Yasanti gives to these brothers. Oh, should we? I don't know, man. They got us surrounded. No problem. No problem. It's all good. Y'all make sure everything's straight at the crib. And when we come back after we kill these we'll be back. And, you know, I don't know what y'all going to do after that. Because, you know, so, I mean, <laughs> this is the famous speech. <laughs> you know, my, my man, um, who I got to meet one time before he made transition, I do Boahen. Uh, Professor Boahen wrote a book on the Yasantiwa War. This is like 1901. You understand? So, I'm saying not to say this, because I mean, haven't really left the special anti-robbery squad, the SARS that these young people are fighting against. The tradition around the African continent is always resistance, but their resistance to colonialism is going to be shaped to the geography, to the politics of the local condition they're encountering as this whiteness, which has always been anchored in violence. It continues to expand. Now, this is the, now we're in the early 20th century, 1900, right? 1901, what do you have? 1901, Yasantiwa War, Paul Robeson, three years old, Jim Thorpe, is around the same age. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, Jim Thorpe actually is about to be a teenager. So in, while in the United States, you got settler colonialism expanding to the West Coast, trying to kill all the Indians, got us now, we didn't come out of slavery, so they want to do a similar education number on us. That's Howard and Fisk and Morehouse and Hampton. And they debating over how to do it, but they're meeting on the fact that they need to do it. Cape and Springs, West Virginia, Lake Mohawk, New York, they're having conferences on how to train the Negroes, right? So in Africa, they're just getting there to colonize. Once they've got it colonized, how long does it last? Not long. We're in 2020. The first, the, the generation that they send to a similar concept of schooling in Africa is being born in 1900, 1910, 1920. So by, for example, in Southern Africa, 1912, the same year, if I'm not mistaken, you have to look it up, that Jim Thorpe won all them medals in the Olympics. I think it's this, the South African Native National Congress is being found. Who are they? These, these South Africans 
that you sent to your schools and some of them became lawyers. Now they're gonna fight you in with your, with your book, <laughs> with your kind. Yeah, no, they still hate y'all. But since you told them that you made them go learn this stuff, they gonna fight you. Then what happens in the next 10, of, I'm sorry, then they have a young, a youth division of the South African Native National Congress, or for short, the African National Congress, <laughs> the ANC. The young people come into it in the 1930s and 40s. Who are they? Anton Lambetti, a young brother named Nelson Mandela, <laughs> another cat. Whatever. Y'all created a school, a college, because you want them, you want to train them to go back and settle the rest of these natives. Uh-huh. And the school they started, which I call the, H the, the main HBCU in South Africa, Fort Hare. Fort Hare is where not only Mandela went to school, Susulu them guys, uh, Tabo and Becky's father, Govan and Becky, also a guy who's in Rhodesia who starts as a school teacher named Robert Mugabe. They gonna, this is the generation that's gonna fight you. By 1960, they have begun Kwame Nkrumah who leaves the country and goes to Lincoln University, HBCU in Pennsylvania, ends up in England, meets up with another cat named Yomo Kenyatta, who leaves the country. In fact, Yomo Kenyatta, all these guys become the first prime ministers or leaders of their former colleagues. Kenyatta and some of his crew put together a thing. They said, now we're going to send our young people abroad to get education to come back and take it from us. We're going to throw all this off. One of those young brothers went off and got a white woman pregnant. Um, and then came back and died in an auto accident, even though he was married before he ever got on the plane. His name was Barack Obama Sr. But at any rate, this, so this whole notion of trying to create leadership is to fight against the colonies. So here we are in 2020. What do we have in Nigeria? You've got a, you've got a country that's imaginary, that was drawn, lines drawn by the settler colonists that have grouped together different groups who, who fought against these Europeans, but fought differently. So the Yorubas fought differently than perhaps the, uh, the Ibibio and the Ibo. The Ibo and the Ibibio and the Yoruba fought differently, maybe from the House of Fulani, the Pules, as they would be called in the French. But now they're all in this imaginary line called Nigeria. And, and because they resisted, they all call themselves proud Nigerians. They got a white and green flag that goes up the pole as the British flag is coming down. 1960, last week was their anniversary. So all the Nigerians know was Nigerian Independence Day. It's beautiful. Now you got a country, but what do you still have? Also, you have the mind of the European. You got a police force. <laughs> you got, you know, you got this indirect rule. So you think, well, we never really completely lost power. Yeah, but now you got a prime minister model. You got a parliament model. You got the European model. And you ask yourself a question, how'd that work out for y'all? Well, hell, we've been fighting in Europe since there was a Europe. 30 years war, 100 years war, World War I, World War II. So of course, <laughs> the Africans dealing with dispute resolution, you're gonna see a lot of similar conflict. Rwanda and Burundi, those people speak the same language, the Watutu and the Wahutsi. What, uh, what you saw there is, there over there, the Belgians created the conflicts. Cause then you, you pick one of the groups and you tell that group, you better than them. So a lot of the beef between the different language groups, ethnic groups, national groups in Africa, was started by having the Europeans creating conflict. So anyway, I decided to say this. Here's the difference, or here's the similarity between African people in Africa and people in the diaspora. When we don't see something, we're gonna cut through all the red tape, we're gonna cut through all the rules and say, now this is wrong. Y'all killed that man. Now this is wrong. Y'all lit that sister up. Y'all killed a pregnant sister the other, other day. Wait, this, that, that was wrong. Sandra Bland, that's some bullshit. Y'all know y'all was that was her traffic, her her, her light, chill light, whatnot. This sense of injustice, we've always kept with us. 
In Africa, they have the numbers. So what you see is these leaders that come into power, if they don't do what people think is right, in Africa, they're more likely, as in the Caribbean, to just say, get rid of them. So when this police force comes out, this SARS starts riding and killing people, that ain't the first time that's happened in Nigeria. Ken Sarawiwa, when Shell Oil was funneling money to corrupt lead, so-called leaders, and they had the so-called killing goes over there, protecting these oil refineries and the Nigerian police. This goes back to Babangada and some of the earlier, you know, uh, rulers, so-called rulers of, in terms of Nigeria. Ken Sarawiwa and them is like, nah, the Ogoni people, you're ruining our land. There's constant fighting and pushing back against this Western-centered model that is now populated in many places by these black-faced, miseducated black. So what these young people said was, now that, later for that, later for a special anti-robbery squad. And then they, they organized not just in Nigeria, they international. Like the article that you said, we read me, John Boyega, the actor, you know, they in London, they at the UN. They said, That's it. That's the end of it. And so what had to happen was uh, Buhari, Muhammadu Buhari, who is now you know, prime minister of Nigeria, he had to meet with the chief of police yesterday and he tweets it out here, I'm here, I'm here. And they said, no, 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 no reform. See our cousins over there in America, they were some other people, they talking about defund the police and they don't really have the numbers yet, but we got the numbers here. Forget defund the police, abolish, abolish SARS. So, what does Bahari tweet a few hours ago? SARS being disbanded. Right, because this is Africa. See, when y'all steal an election here, I'm getting my machete, I'm gonna get my man, sis, you with us? We, like in Burkina Faso, we will just burn down the place you live. In other words, we're not going, now, now in the American press, what they report on CNN, violence in Africa. No, 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 no. What you see there is humanity. Because here, when y'all steal an election, we protest for five minutes and then go find out what's coming on TV tonight. Hey, whoa, LeBron and them, are they up? Yeah, see, they're not going to do that <laughs> in Africa. They're going to keep going till they figure out how to make a society. And the problem we have here is that that miseducation process in part, that part that Woodson has been right, they wrote about, that we've been talking about for all these months, that Paul and them brought back into print, that we're going to now go and re-examine over these next few months and think through. That miseducation scrambled our minds. So even the thing that we want, we think there are only one or two ways to pursue it. Only one of which is going through the Constitution, because they're not going by the Constitution. Only one of which is voting. Yeah, that's just a tool. But then we say, no, no, we ain't going to vote because we, wait, wait, slow down. Slow down. Everybody calm down. All of these are tools. Education is learning how to pick which tool for which job. Miseducation is confusing the tool with the objective. You understand, they got y'all in here thinking about the tools. You arguing over tools instead of figuring out what can this tool do? What can this tool do? You know, if I pick this tool, this tool, and this tool, can we do, we won't even have conversations enough about the objective. But I wanna pause here for a minute, Karen, cause you know, to ask you um, among other things, you know, how do you view this militia movement in Michigan? And how do you view it as, in part, as part of what's going on in this country in terms of this country's, I mean, where are we at in the United States in your mind in terms of what's about to happen or what is happening right now? I mean, in terms of the idea of the United States. 
what's been happening is what's always been happening. And I think that that was what was really clear to me when you brought that book out about the fall of America. I was like, ooh, and I started putting these things together. And I'm like, the Civil War was a, a period that never ended. Yes. Because from the very beginning, this notion of whiteness, you know, we had this discussion on the air this week too with, with um, Edward Baptist that happens never been told, that author, and he's come together with, with, with Dr. Jeffries to, to do this runaway slave narrative that they're putting into this, you know, this AI system to, to gather all of the, the, the data around people that rebelled and ran away, which is a powerful, powerful thing that they're doing. But as they were talking, I'm like, if the objective of America was financial supremacy forever, and the creation of whiteness was the tool to ensure it so that everybody that comes in is always working to feed that beast, which is why the top, how many? It's four companies that have, you know, the top 1% have more money than the than all of us combined. You know what yep. I'm saying? Yep. Like 10 people in the country that have more money than everybody. Like that's by design. The stock market is raging. Who's benefiting? Not most of us. And then they're going to give us a stimulus package. It's all a trick. And if we don't, unearth ourselves from this notion of blackness and whiteness from the construct they've given us because we bought into it because we're chasing something that's going to be ever elusive right what are we chasing what Freedom. are we, ch what are we chasing Quality, equity we want justice how do you get justice when the system was reaped and sold on this notion of injustice and imbalance and so so i'm saying community we need to double down on it see one another with love, respect, dignity, work together. And I don't care what form it comes in, what form we look like. Stop all this stupid bickering. Stop all of this public, mm -hmm. uh, you know, destruction of one another. Who's it benefiting? Mm. Right? And if you live in a community where there are kids that are, you know, that have no option other than to pick up guns and sell drugs and all of that, that's our fault. Yes, they flooded it, but come on now. You know, at the end of the day, we have ultimate power to create, recreate, and throw off the yoke because there are so many unconscious white, so-called white folks too, who don't even know that they're part of this. So like, once they're tapped on the shoulder, I said on the show the other day, if you call yourself white, you're part of the problem. Now, that, that may be offensive to a lot of people, but why is it offensive? Why are you wedded to something that doesn't exist that has no culture, has no real origin, has no language, has no food, music, nothing. All it has is destructive behavior, denigration and destruction. That's what whiteness is, right? So if you call yourself white, so I think that for me, you know, is is having that drum beat without. And and as we have these conversations on 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 Saturday, and I'm I'm so deeply grateful that you are who you are and that we are you know able to do this as i as i sit here my concern is that we are not evolved enough too many of us evolved enough we don't that we are rote thinkers that we are lazy come on that, mm. that when, when things are said like this instead of going wow i i'm okay okay let me Oh, there's no Santa Claus? You know, I, I offered this, yes. I was like, when, when, how old were you when you learned there was no Santa Claus? You know, and what happened to you as a result? What happened of to you? What happened we to you? We literally, what I'm saying to you is that there's no country. There's no whiteness. 
There's not all of this. I'm telling you that there's no Santa Claus. So what are you going to do about it? You're going to be mad that there's no Santa Claus? You're going to kill a messenger, so to speak, proverbially? Yes. You better not, you know, they'll just, just make, they'll make Santa Claus into a black woman in order to keep Santa Claus. See, that's the thing people understand about white supremacy. Wait, how it does with Jesus? Come on now. Exactly. Oh. I mean, in fact, people talk, obviously, you probably saw this too on, on, on social media the past few weeks. You know, people talking about cancel culture, it doesn't apply to white men. Mel Gibson, they just made a movie where Mel Gibson is playing Santa Claus. Santa Claus. This is the most anti-Semitic, white nationalist, I don't care how many movies he made with Danny Glover, but guess what? Santa will never die. Why? Because Santa's off limits to you. Even if we got to make Santa black right now, he's not black yet, but we'll have Santa turn to a black woman. That ain't no thing. We'll get some, because what we can't allow you to do is walk away from Santa. So in, in some ways, I think even in terms of Lovecraft Country, that becomes in my mind uh, a reason why we see a Lovecraft Country. In other words, HBO, in order, these are concessions in order for us not to turn away from those institutions. And let I me mean, think about Antonio Gramsci, right? The, the Italian, Italian Marxist. He talks about hegemony and power. And one of the things that will happen is when a system sees that it is being threatened to be overturned, it will open up to make enough concessions to be able to, con to extend its power. So in other words, instead of us saying, in addition to these breakthroughs, because I love Lovecraft Country, I think in addition to that, can we still be working toward building our independent network so that if this thing ever shifts again and they cancel the stuff, you ain't writing petitions, but, and they making all the money. I know they paid the actors and I know they paid you know, the executive producers kind of thing, but they own the property and, and don't you have to pay for HBO? Right, so in other words, instead of just looking at that, can we build our, do we have a black classic press? Do we have- But wait, wait, but what is independent? Because- <laughs> Right. We, we've seen some well, very I, I, popular, what is independent let, let, if let, you let, are let still in a colonized mind? Because the let, only, so when I got that book from Paul Coates, Dr. Coates, um, yeah. I saw independence in, in about, the offering, uh, in, in his box. Oh, no question. No, but that, I, box but, came, that box came from his place. That's right. That's what I'm saying. I don't, we've had BET, we've had TV One. Right. You know, I'm going to go down the list. What right. good is it? What does it profit us if we uh, build things, we build things in their image? Modeling after them. Well, let me, let me put All it this right. way. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Paulo Freire. Paulo Freire, of course, the Latin American educator, writes, uh, you know, everybody know, probably knows his book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, right? He talks about something, among other people, called the surplus value of education meaning that when you get a real education, and real education is when we bring our life experiences into a learning space, share them, and then acquire new content to help us work through the challenge of our daily lives, right? But he says, as you're acquiring this content, as you're building this, there's a surplus value. In other words, there's a reason they brought you in here to do this. That is in really, in many ways, in, in, a lot of times, in conflict with what you want for yourself. But as you get the education, you're going to overflow what they wanted for you. And the thing you always wanted, you're better prepared to get it. So just as the Howards and the, the uh, Armstrongs and the Fisks and them were arguing about what to do, what was happening was, and James Anderson, again, that's why I love his book, The Education of Blacks in the South. He said, Black people had already started teaching their children. 
the soldiers that went out, and we talked about this, we talked about Woodson. Woodson was first taught how to read and write and his siblings by his uncles, his, his sisters, uh, brothers who had been in the Civil War. And, and one thing in the Union Army, they taught them how to read and write. Those cats came back and started teaching. So this is the surplus value of education. I know what you want me to do, but now I read your book and I'm going, Richard Wright, his mother, Harriet, walked his, he and his siblings out of a field in Cuthbert, Georgia, into Atlanta, and they went to school in a railroad boxcar in Atlanta. And they started learning. And General Howard comes to Atlanta to observe these Negro children. Oh, yeah. Then at the end, oh, that's very nice. They're learning. He asked the children, he says, now, what do you want me to go back and tell your friends in the North? You know, these, uh, these philanthropists, the Gates and the Michael Bloombergs. And, I'm sorry. No, I shouldn't even say that. Uh, the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation. No, wait. No, I shouldn't even say that either. Uh, the MacArthur's and the Genius Grants. No, I, I shouldn't even say that either. Uh, the Ohio State University that pays my friend Hassan Jeffries and my friend Ed Baptist. Yeah, I, no, wait. No, I shouldn't say that either. Uh, General Howard says, what do you want me to go back and tell our friends who are for you? The little boy, Richard Wright, raises his hand. He tells General, General Howard, tell him we're rising. <laughs> the little boy, Richard Wright, grows up off of what he told General Howard. They write poems about him. He becomes known as the black boy of Atlanta. <laughs> he said, tell him we coming. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Don't worry about, you know, I don't want no charity. Richard Wright grows up, Richard Robert Wright grows up to found Savannah State College, now Savannah State University. He founds a bank in Philadelphia. His son, Richard Robert Wright Jr., becomes the bishop of the AME Church. His granddaughter, Richard Robert Wright Jr.'s daughter, Ruth Wright Hare, becomes the first black superintendent of the Philadelphia Public Schools. And when she becomes the superintendent, she makes the motto of the Philadelphia Public Schools, tell them we are rising. She wrote her memoir on this. This little boy, he white folks like, this is the surplus value of education. I know what you want. General Howard, but let me tell you something. My mama walked us out of slavery. We in a boxcar. You down here think you're doing something for me, Chief? Let me be very clear. I'm going to take these numbers and letters and I'm going to break your whole society. And me and my friends here, we're going to rebuild. Tell them we're rising. That's what you tell them. Don't tell them thanks. <laughs> Don't tell them, you know what I'm saying? No, tell them we're rising. And so, and I said, and I said, Ed and Hassan, because I know them both well. We, in fact, we were together at Montpelier. Montpelier is James Madison's plantation. And, and I never forget. Plantation. 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 No question. And in fact, I, I'm a member of the Montpelier Society. I paid my little dues. I get their newsletters. I mean, they invited me. To, we had a whole conference on enslavement, whole conference on how do you teach slavery and interpret slavery. Because Hassan had been doing that work. His first book, Bloody Lounge, on the Black Panther Party of Alabama, very important work. You know, his brother, of course, is in the United States Congress. Their uncle, Leonard Jeffries, of course, many years on the faculty at City College. You know, that's my man. You know what I'm saying? So, so I know Hassan well, Morehouse graduate, you know, trained by some of the great scholars, you know, Alton Hornsby, who was the editor of the Journal of, of American History for many years. You know, so at any rate, so we're all down there. And they're having this conversation. And then we staying down there. I drove down in a Friday night. We're going to be there till Sunday. It's getting late. We all sitting out. We stay, they got a bonfire. This is where the enslaved Africans, where they've reconstructed the cabins. We all that's black, dark outside. We around this bonfire. I love Ed Baptist, good brother. Same thing with Hassan. He's my people, right? So we all stand around. And I said, you know what? Y'all read Doug Chambers' book, right? Murder at Montpelier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, some of these cats work at Montpelier. They're historians. I mean, it's, they're brilliant people. Ellen Brooks Higginbotham, who's the president of Asala, Association of Study Negro Life History. We all ran. I said, so you think Chambers is right? Do you think those evil women killed James Madison's grandfather? Because see, the enslaved Africans 
they were on that plantation for a decade before the Madison family came. They sent them over there to basically clear the land and push back the Native Americans. This black on red crime. I mean, whatever you want to call it, in service of white domination, as Amos Wilson from Hattiesburg, Mississippi would say. So at any rate, then the Madisons come. The grandfather, James Madison's grandfather, takes ill and dies. They put several black people on trial because the word is these evil women came over here, figured out the mix from the plants indigenous to North America and killed them. <laughs> Murder at Montpelier. <laughs> these women are tried. And also a black man is tried. The black man is found guilty, they kill him. The black women who probably did it are not only found not guilty, they let them kind of walk around the plantation free. Because according to the will, the grandfather, if he dies, the property and all the value goes to the grandmother, his wife. The grandmother and the grandfather had a little bit of beef. Meaning what? Now the speculation is that the white woman, the, 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 the wife, is in league with these black women. <laughs> in other words, if you kill him, I'm going to let y'all kind of do what y'all want around here. No problem. We got that. We brought the technology from Africa. This the plant? Wait, over here we call it this. This is it. Mix, mix, mix. Death. So anyway, we all sitting here. We stand. Now it's time to go to bed. Me and Hassan, we go up to the place they got for us. That's not where the enslaved were. They are also restored where the white folks used to live. Now, we get out our car. We drove now. We, drove. we go up in there. Me and him sitting in, he was sitting in a little, you know, common area. Then we go to our rooms. It's quiet. And I think to myself, after all this day of discussion and how we going to plot this curriculum stuff, I think to myself, this is a plantation. For the first time in my life, I'm a 50-some-year-old man. I'm getting ready to go to lay my head down on a place where our people were raped and killed. I want a plantation. I'm from Tennessee. I ain't never. I've been to many plantations. I ain't never going to sleep. <laughs> and, the, and I was disturbed. You know what I'm saying? So that was Friday night. So we met all day Saturday. Then Saturday night, I'm in the bed like, and then finally, early Sunday morning, like four day in the morning, I was like, I can't. You know what? I know what it is. I know what it is. I didn't even ask them permission to be here. Who was them? All those Africans. So I got up, drove my car back around to where the African, where the quarters were. And I brought a big bottle of water. And it was kind of drizzling outside. It was great. Early Sunday morning. This is about maybe 7 o'clock Sunday morning. And it was daytime, but just, it, just a little bit before, you know, after dawn. So, and so, I start pouring libation. And they have a sign with the names of some of the Africans there. It's a plaque. You know, this is weird preserved. So I'm calling the names. And every time I pour that water, it gets a little heavier to drizzle. About two minutes in, as I'm calling, I'm calling every name of it. Now it's raining. By the time I got to the end of that bottle, it was flooding. <laughs> you understand? I said, and then I was crying. I was pouring. The water was coming down. I finished. I stood there. It stopped raining. I never asked them permission. You know what I'm saying? I would have been trying to kill James Madison. I want to believe. I like to believe I would have been with those sisters to try to poison James Madison's grandfather. You're not my father. Now, I've taken my nephew, my, my nephew Ellington, who uh, turned 18 yesterday. Uh, my man uh, down in Houston, get ready to go play soccer over in Europe once this plague thing kind of clears, whatever. Me and Ellington sat in James Madison's study one summer. We went down there. 
And, you know, I'm sitting there with him. I said, this is the room where James Madison was thinking up the stuff that went into the Constitution. Except you, as an 11-year-old, would have been outside making nails like his buddy Thomas Jefferson had. Because we went to Monticello, too. In other words, we, we call it crime scene investigation tour in the summertime. Come on, let's go to all these crime scenes <laughs> and see what, you know. And so, you know, he asking the guy questions she can't answer. You know, well, what would I have been doing? Oh, yeah, yeah. See this little boy here? When you say we, he know you don't mean him. Or he knows that you want to mean, you want him to think you mean him to keep him in check when he gets ready to fight his iteration of the war. James Madison was brilliant. I admire James Madison's mind, but I like to think I'd have been trying to kill him. Or like the guy who was uh, enslaved there, what's his name? Um, James Madison, Paul Jennings. I think it was it. Paul Jennings was enslaved by Madison. Paul Jennings was there when James Madison died. Paul, Paul Jennings went on and built his own business and Dolly Madison, James Madison's wife, whose son was a ne'er-do-well, spent all the money, all this kind of thing. When James Madison died, he was in debt like Thomas Jefferson indebted Trump of his age as was in debt. <laughs> in other words, they died broke. Dolly ain't got no money. The son is the stepson and spent the money. So what happens is, until James Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention, which he wasn't supposed to be taking, he wrote them, they sold that, she got a little money, but until that time, guess who breaking off her little, or her off a little change to stay indoors? Paul Jennings, the black dude. There's a book called A Slave in the White House because he followed them to the White House. In the War of 1812, 1814, when the British come and burn the White House, with black help, by the way, because our, our people built the White House. Yeah, and they also showed the British how to burn it. Why are you confusing building something with taking pride in being an American? You people got real miseducation issues. So anyway, that was their job. So Madison's enslaved African Paul Jennings is trying to escape with Dolly. They get to another part of DC and she, Paul Jennings tells a sister who is enslaved by somebody else, they talking behind the scenes. He writes it down in his book. He writes a book about this. He says, we, we trying to escape after they done burnt the plate. Oh, by the way, Paul Jennings was also the one that told Dolly Madison and told, told the people, look, cut that picture out and take, roll that up, take that with us. That's the Stuart Gilbert portrait of George Washington that's on the dollar bill. Paul Jennings is the one who said, look, cut, save that picture. You know, so, you know, so at any rate, Jennings says, he's talking to the sister and the sister said, you know what? I know y'all come over here trying to find a place to stay, but y'all can't stay here. Why? Because my master told your master's wife that, uh, she can't stay here because she said, your husband got my husband over there in Blainsburg somewhere fighting the British and he might die. So guess what? You can't stay here. I mean, these are the black people talking about what the white people are talking about, right? Which is the only reason I'm bringing all this up is to say that Ed was there, Hassan was there, we all at Montpelier. My relationship to white institutions like yours is one of selective engagement and tactical engagement. So, and I didn't know that Ed and Hassan and them are building a database to talk about, you know, blacks and revolution. Why? Because with all due respect, I went, I got two degrees, wait, one, two, yeah, two degrees from Ohio State. I got a JD and a master's, right? I don't care about the Ohio State University and thank God I'm not on the faculty of the Ohio State University because when you do research like that and do important work like that, the institutions then channel that back into their institutional status and they retain control at some point we need those databases to be built 
independently. And it doesn't mean getting consulting contracts to help school districts. It doesn't mean, because what you're also telling young people is, you have to do that work in these white institutions. And I'm an individual here with these other individuals there, and here's a black and brown and white, we're all together. Yeah, but in their mind, they're thinking, I'm going to Stanford. I'm going to Ohio State. Then somebody show up from Tuskegee where all the documents are that you want to get to do this work. And then they say, well, I'd like to go to Tuskegee, but it's not as highly ranked in the US News and World Report. So no, no shade, no criticism at all, because I understand we need people everywhere. At the same time, what miseducation often puts in our mind is that we're not good enough. Our institutions aren't good enough. Our efforts aren't good enough. And even when we have a little piece of institution, we're going to need their assistance. We're going to need their partnership. And the exchange finally usually works like this. What we bring to the table is us, meaning our content knowledge, our experiences. What these institutions bring to the table is a dollar. And the exchange is, in exchange for who you are, we're going to give you a little money. And now we have who you are. And this is now what we're going to do. We're going to write all the books. We're going to write all the memory. And when you come to the meeting and the book don't look like what you wanted it to look like, we're going to remind you to look at the fine print of your contract. <laughs> because what you understand is you don't own this property. Now, are you going to continue to go on and get paid? Good. In fact, we want you to go out and complain about it. Why? Because that gives us the illusion that we're actually uh, very open-minded in these conversations. And so therefore, yes, we've got some real black nationalists. Yeah, no, you don't. You ain't got no black nationalists. So you understand, if you understand white supremacy, everything else you think you understand will only confuse you. So, I mean, I think that that's part of it. And, and, but let, let me say this story in terms of the slave narratives, because we were talking about the so-called slave narratives, and, and I'm glad they're doing that work. As we know, the the federal government under Roosevelt, and by the way, in terms of racism and presidents, I should drop this footnote as well. There have been a number of books that talk about who was the most racist president. From my mind, everybody prior to Lincoln is number one, because we were enslaved. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how people can talk about. Well, let's see. Is uh, is he worse than uh, than Millard Fillmore? I'm sorry. From Washington to Lincoln, did any of them uh, move to abolish enslavement? No. Okay, so they're all number one. Let's just. Get, I don't even know how, how we debating. That's that we BS. You know, that's that Hamilton BS. Y'all done gone back before the end of enslavement and tried to rehabilitate somebody who had somebody oppressed? Are you, are you sick? Okay, they're all number one. Now the fight is for number two. Now, people say, well, of course, then uh, Lincoln would be probably the best. Mm, Margaret Kimberly has written a book that just came out, Good Sister, very good book called uh, Unprecedented. She spells president like president of the United States, unprecedented. She goes from Washington to Trump and looks at policies. It's a very readable book, again, journalistic style, very well researched, deeply researched, very important book. Uh, there are, of course, books on, as you mentioned, the FBI. There's Kenneth O'Reilly. Kenneth O'Reilly, people know Kenneth O'Reilly's book, Racial Matters, which is on the FBI. But there's another book he wrote called Nixon's Piano, where he looks at Nixon. He then comes forward after Nixon, you know, forward Carter. He's looking at these are, the, this is, these are the racial policies. And you see how racist they were. There are other uh, books that talk about specific presidencies. I pulled, I pulled three of them just as an example. So we know, uh, we used to joke and call him 666 because the, the, the number of letters in his three names come out to 666, Ronald Wilson Reagan. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this cat right here who's actually in town in Washington, D.C. at, uh, well, no, no, he's actually in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. Uh, Piero, uh, Glia Jesus. 
he's written, this is one of three books he wrote, a three volume history of how this dude is part of the move to not only crush Caribbean folk like Castro, which is all the presidents, so they're all fighting for number two now, but also South Africa. You know, Ray, this is his book, Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the struggle for Southern Africa. So we often think of blackness in a domestic sense in the United States and not an international sense. International coalition is what enables us to work together to advance liberation wherever we are. That's why, for example, talking about SARS is important. I'm glad you raised it. Uh, people think, well, Jimmy Carter was good. He was good to black people. Yeah, okay. This is Nancy Mitchell's book. Jimmy Carter in Africa, Race and the Cold War. It's a big old thick book, right? This is, a, this is an important book to talk about how, yeah, you can talk about Jimmy Carter and black people and Andrew Young appointing him. I, got, I just got another book on Andrew Young, his years at the UN. People, you know, we, you know, yeah. But don't think about the American Negro only domestically. Think of how these presidents treated black people internationally as well. And of course, my, the, other, the other one I just pulled of the three, oh, I thought, oh yes, yes, yes. Now, this is an interesting, very interesting book. This book, there's a good book by a guy out of Great Britain called The Bystander. Talks about John F. Kennedy. You know, Black people are funny in terms of miseducation. Some people talk about Jackie Kennedy's gowns and John F. Kennedy's swag. That's miseducation. Stop looking at people like you're looking at a TV show. What was John Kennedy's foreign policy, his domestic policy toward Black people? Domestically, he did very little. I said, well, he laid the foundation for Johnson. Yes, he did in terms of federal policy. Some of the federal policy he did. But look, this is JFK ordeal in Africa. This is <laughs> Richard Mahoney's book. This picture is taken in the Oval Office as John F. Kennedy is being informed by his CIA and international officers that Patrice Lumumba is dead. <laughs> in other words, y'all didn't kick. It says, uh, February 13th, 1961, JFK receives news of Lumumba's murder. Meaning what? The white boy who was over the CIA in Central Africa, in Congo, wrote a book before he died called Chief of Station Congo, where he writes about, oh yeah, we knew what was going on. We monitored the guy. And they just, I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago, they said they're going to return Patrice Lumumba's remains to, to the Congo. There are no remains. After they killed him, and this was Joseph Mobutu, talk about a Negro who was in league with them. Mobutu was part of it, this whole Katanga province. Those of you who know the history of Congo know what I'm talking about. And black people in the United States protested against it. Abby Lincoln and them, they had the UN, Carlos Moore, John Clark, all protesting at the UN. International. We always think internationally as black people. When we don't, it's when we get in trouble. But they captured him. They brought him out to a field. They murdered him. They chopped his body up. They took one of them oral drums full of acid put his whole body in there and dissolved his body so they could get rid of the crime. And the only thing physically remaining of Patrice Lumumba were a couple of teeth that one of them white boys took back to Belgium as a trophy. The teeth are what they're going to return to Congo. So y'all wanna love John F. Kennedy and the Rat Pack and Sammy Davis Jr. You need to understand something about these presidents. So all, all this stuff is there. So Margaret Kimberly's book, uh, my man Clarence Luzane wrote a book called The Black History of the White House that details a lot of this work. But the book I wanted to raise up is from a brother that probably very few people have, have, have thought about. And Karen, you, you, again, not only thank you so much for this forum for create, not only all the work you do, but this Saturday forum, because you're also giving us a place where we can imagine doing this work in ways that are really available to us. This is a book that's out of print, but 
It's also a book that can be brought back into a print. But I don't know. We do we know anybody with a printing press? Anyway, <laughs> so but this is I start with this book. This is a brother who was on the faculty at Morgan State College. This is George Sinclair's book, The Racial Attitudes of American Presidents, from Abraham Lincoln to Theodore Roosevelt, and he lists them all on this. Sinclair is a brother before any of these books, before any of these big grant subsidized folks who are going to go back. No. Sinclair was at a black college, a black professor who goes through president by president in 500 pages, line by line, and goes through the policy. And then in terms of, and that's why you mentioned narratives, it made me think about because we had talked about narratives before. The Works Progress Administration under Fr uh, Franklin Roosevelt subsidized black uh, people going and talking to that last generation of Africans who had gone through slavery, who had gone through enslavement, who to get their records, get their, uh, get their testimony. The problem is, most of the people lived in the South. And so the federal money was going to the states to do this. But in the Southern states, they would not hire Black people to go interview these Black people. So when you read the WPA, and by the way, anybody with a computer, we well, got one because you're watching this, on your phone or whatever, go to the Library of Congress and just type in WPA narratives, and you can pull up because they were federally subsidized. So you can pull up narratives, you can search them, you can look through and look at this testimony. But as you're reading it, keep in mind that most of the people that these black, old black people, over 75, 80, 85 years old, they're talking to white people, a lot of them white women. So they ain't gonna talk to them in Texas, in Tennessee, in 1938, 1939. You think they're gonna talk to them about, when you listen to it, I mean, there's, there, there are so many quotes, and I won't even go. I'll just mention one. This is, uh, let me see. Let me see, can I find a couple to give, you a, to give you a sense of how these Black people are talking to each other. Oh, Cato Carter. This is his interview. He says, everything I tell you am the truth, but there's plenty I can't tell you. In other words, <laughs> if you hear me say it, it happened. There's plenty I can't tell you. I'm thinking to myself, Cato Carter talked to a white man or a white woman. Because certain things, I'm just not going to tell you. I got to live down here. It's 1938. Jim Crow shit. I'm, getting, I'm not getting ready to tell. Uh, the best scholars, women like Wilma King, people like Wilma King. Wilma King has written on slavery during childhood. She uses many of these narratives because they talk about when I was a child, you know, they would feed us in the morning the same trough they fed the hogs. They would slap the hogs and we had to go out there and eat out the same. I mean, because these are old people, but many of them were, were just, just born into enslavement. So they're like five, six, seven years old. A few of them were older, but most of them were children. So you're reading about that. But here's where I wanted to go, finally. Before there was a WPA, Black people had started this work. Black people like Lawrence Reddick, the great Lawrence Reddick, uh, who uh, did some of this recovery work as well. Uh, and then I want to mention this sister right here. There's a new book on Lawrence Reddick coming out in a couple of months. I can't wait for it because Reddick was the first biography of Martin Luther King. He wrote Crusader Without Violence. It was the first biography of King. came out just after the Montgomery bus boycott. Lawrence D. Reddick was a very important figure. Schomburg did a lot of other work. Um, I want to say it wasn't Philander Smith. It may have been at Arkansas A&M, State College for Negroes, where he started this work. But at Fisk, it was Charles Johnson. So Charles Johnson who had the Race Relations Institute at Fisk, the first volume they published, which was originally published in 1945. It was issued in 1945. He had his research assistants go out and interview as many Black people they could find in Tennessee, Kentucky, who had gone through slavery. 
the sister who did the most interviews, who interviewed a couple of hundred, was a sister named um, Ophelia Settle Egypt. Ophelia Settle Egypt, who, and they published something that was republished as mm. Unwritten History of Slavery. <laughs> the Unwritten History of Slavery. This is the reprint, but guess what? It too is out of print. Hmm, do we know somebody? But anyway, the point is that, so Black people had already started, inter and these stories then, as you read these narratives, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, you know what? I want to read these first because I expect that these people here, in fact, there's one here called When It's All Right to Steal from Your Master. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, uh, Mr. Huddleston is the first one she's talking to. Huddleston says, I was born a slave myself. I remember they used to whip us. He said, what you all needs now. <laughs> In other words, what else you need to know? <laughs> this violence right here, I remember they used to whip us. What else y'all need? In other words, but this is, this, is a, this is clearly a black man talking to a black woman and a younger black woman. So I'm gonna talk to you, but because uh, a lot of those Africans who came out of enslavement would not talk about it. There's a series called Bullwhip Days that draws some of the narratives. George Walrick did like 14 volumes called The American Slave, which has these chronicles in it. And then there's little pamphlet books. One of them is called My Folks Don't Want to Talk About Slavery. I mean, anyway, that crew that came out of enslavement, looking at their children, hey, what was it like when you were a little girl? You know, children are asking, no, 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 you go to school. They wouldn't tell them. So now these elders, here come these old, these, these young black people, tell us about slavery. I remember they used to whip us, what else y'all want? In other words, and then so they ease into it. Now the black woman comes in. This is Mrs. Sutton talking to Ophelia, settle Egypt. He said, the, this race coming up now, don't know nothing about hard work. This is not 2020. <laughs> she talking to this young sister. She said, over there, see a road all turned up like this one? And you would see men and women both throwing up dirt and rocks. The men would haul it off and the women would take picks and things and get it up. You would get hungry but you never could stop to that whistle blow or an old gong sound about one o'clock or after, but you never get nothing to eat before. Then we didn't have nothing to eat but sour milk. What was so sour, you could hear it bottling before you get there. No, you could smell it. That's all they gave them. Then she says, she says, the women and the men did the same work. You go out there, we doing the same work. And then at the end of this paragraph, she says, um, oh, she said, you could any day see a woman, a whole lot of them making on a road. She went on to say, hold on, there's something I wanted to read you. Oh, yeah, here it is. Then Mr. Huddleston breaks in. The two of them get an interview together. Huddleston says to the young person, I'm sure she's talking, she's talking to Ophelia, says, do you know what a slide was? It was, it was a kind of wagon what men pulled. Then Miss Sutton continues, I could cut wood. I've done anything any man ever done except cut wheat. But then after they cut it, I would gather it up. So she goes on. Then at the end of that paragraph, she says, look, here's this one we're in. She says, I've done everything on a farm that a man done except cut wheat. You would, have, you would have to do everything. And some of them very same devils, what made you do it, are in hell burning now. That's what she tells this show. So see, these are the narratives you want. So I know that uh, my man Hassan and Ed and them, I know those brothers, so I know they're gonna try. Look, put that in, the, put that in chapter one, brother. When you know, <laughs> them very same devils, don't edit it, don't put an asterisk or a little footnote by devil, they meant, no, she said what she meant. Them very same devils is in hell burning now. And some of their children tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan last week. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway. And, and actually, you know, Dr. Baptist and Dr. Um, Jeffries, they're, they're reclaiming the runaway um, 
notices as oh. a way of showing that no one, because the people who ran yes. had it quote unquote better because they had access to things and yet they still ran. And the notion is everybody should be free. So let's end there because the notion yeah. is no matter no matter how much food you get and no matter no matter whether or not you don't get whipped, no matter whether you get to leave the plantation to work or whatever, you still want to be free. And you know, part of these Saturday um, lessons, this is again, it's modeling what what it can be. Not yes. through the lens of what you think it should be. Because for some people, you know, we hit and record. I'm on purpose, not making it fancy. There's no fancy cameras. You got the, right. your books behind you. This, wherever you are, is where you can learn. And however you learn, we're not having a, a syllabus with, nope. you know, because we're both in academia. You have to tell each each week what you're teaching. You have to That's have right. the reading list. You have to, no, you're going to pull a book out your thing and we're going to have a conversation. It's going to spark it. a in somebody that's going to take it to where they need to take it because that's there's it. no uniform way to learn. No. And we wake up, education. like you said, we wake up, we talk a little bit before and then you send the link and we press record. That means you can't fake this. And that should give everybody hope. In other words, just learn. We can learn together. We don't have a curriculum. We don't have a syllabus yet. I mean, we could develop. In fact, this book just came out, Karen. It's called Syllabus. I know you appreciate this. The remarkable, unremarkable document that changes everything. They done wrote a whole book, Princeton University Press, what on do you syllabus. Have that? I said a word and you got a damn book about it. This no, but I'm saying, but, but, but this is to the point, right? That, that makes I, no sense. No, I mean, but I spent, look, I spent my little HBCU professor salary on books. And I'm saying, so when they cut the lights off or they decide the Dwight institutions, now that they've collected everything, everybody, and by the way, John O. Franklin's last book was called Runaway Slaves. He did a book on those advertisements. One of the ways that these scholars go at this is that they look at the material archive. And that's important. I'm not saying, it's centrally important, but it's kind of like trying to gauge what the sun looks like by looking away from the sun. In other words, so what can you learn about what these people wanted by looking at runaway slave notices? You can learn a lot. At the same time, you ask yourself, hmm, is there any record of what those people thought? Because what we're doing now is interpreting what they thought out of something white people did. I mean, all those letters that um, George Washington wrote trying to get on the judge to come back to Virginia. We have those letters, but on the judge's testimony, and, and we'd have to go to the oral history, the family history, so those things work together. But the reason I, I, I said, you know, and what you said is so important, I mean, all the things, but th this last thing you said, especially everybody watching this, this isn't rocket science. The stories begin with your families. In the comments, in the conversations you have with people, when they bring up something, I love it when they say, oh yeah, I'm from there. Or yeah, I'll tell you about this. Yes, yes, that's where it is. Don't elevate the idea of study as some rare thing. Every child that came to the Carlisle Institute for Native Americans had their culture with them. That's why these white people tried to destroy it. Every child that showed up, they rebelled against the Hampton curriculum when they came to Hampton. And they said, I came here to learn math and to learn carpentry and stuff. And they got me painting fence rails. They started writing letters pushing back against Armstrong. Even Booker Washington, when he starts Tuskegee, he said, it ain't going to be enough to teach morals. We got these skills. So who he gets one of the baddest scientists ever born in America, George Washington Carver. Carver comes down there and he's experimenting. He's showing these that. So the surplus value of education means you're not going to, don't look to that brick and mortar. 
And after the play hit, guess what? We all on level playing field. So a Karen Hunter, Professor Hunter, can invite Ed Baptist in, assign Jeffries, and now you get it. And then we can have this conversation, and now you get it. Guess what? Did you uh, pay $46,000 a year to get? No. And people say, well, I would pay. Well, at some point, somebody's going to have to give up $5 or $10 a piece so we can do exactly what I just did. Because this book right here, this book right here costs $24.95 before tax. And guess what? I don't have a grant. So therefore, <laughs> so, but the point is that Woodson showed us what to do. That's why I'll say this finally. Those books that, oh man, I, I just, I'm basking in a relationship with you and Paul because those books that Paul Coates prints, that people write and he publishes, old books that he recovers and publishes in Black Classic Press, he makes sure, he makes sure that they are not overt, they are not extraneously priced. Those books are gonna cost you $20, $25, $16.95. In other words, the most important thing for Paul is that we get the books. And if you spend money on whatever was the latest release, or you still bet, that's enough money to buy two or three of them books that's coming out of Black Classic Press. And then we work together. And that's what this is all about. So yes. uh, we're gonna end it there. Uh, and it's my hope that every week, you know, we dismantle, you call it breaking the university, you know, we're gonna- we gonna, Yeah, we're gonna uh, jailbreak it. It's gone. Jailbreak it. Uh, you know, um, that, that we recognize that we're part of a larger community that spans beyond these borders, that there are no borders around our, our, our love for one another and our connection to one another. And I think that, you know, we start from there and then piecing together all of our lost history. So we're going to sp sprinkle in all of the Africans before there was bondage, because as you keep saying, this is a footnote. Y'all are a footnote to our history. That's we're going to go back to the years and sprinkle that in. But as we do that, we also have to dismantle the things we've been taught about ourselves and about others that have, I think, keep it, that on purpose keeping us away from our true purpose and our true power. So I'm, yes. I'm again, I'm, I'm super grateful uh, to be here every Saturday. And we try to keep it within, you know, a time frame. We're gonna be a little late today, y'all getting this a little later than normal, but that's all right. You know, it's all no, right. There's no boundaries around learning. We're gonna do nope. it when we do. I'm gonna try to keep to, uh, you know, get it in at noon. But if it's not at noon, you get it by one. It's all no right. question. It's still it's no. noon Central Standard Time. My people in Nashville, okay. my mom and them, it's two hours ahead. So we we just no, look at East Coast. <laughs> it's right, noon listen, somewhere. Uh, I thank you for your time as always. No, thank you, and sis. Love you. Brilliant. And uh, we, yeah, I love you. I love y'all. Uh, thank you for supporting too. Let me just say thank you. Uh, yes. Thumbs up. Share it. Share it widely. We appreciate Please. the donations. Doctor Doctor Carr is buying more books than he uh, probably. That's right. Got to play. That's right. <laughs> I'm gonna go and, buy a book today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank uh, we'll see y'all next week. Um, next yes. week we're gonna I'm gonna delve more into some African stuff. Next oh, week, no, we're no. go back, go back, 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 back. Ready? Back, back, Before back, back. Oh yeah, I should say that. You said yeah. back, back, back. It reminded me of uh, Dusty Baker. I saw people don't like the Houston Astros, but I play black baseball. Meaning what? I believe that black people should root for black people. So therefore, Dusty Baker, the manager of the Houston Astros, and I thought I'd actually pulled his book, but I can't find it. Oh, I had it somewhere around here. I thought about it. Oh, because can't find because you were oh, undefeated. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Now here it is. You know, Dusty undefeated. Baker. That's that's my man, Johnny D. Baker. He played. He's the manager of the Houston Astros. I wanted to get a World Series ring. This is actually his uh, autobiography. Well, he didn't. He didn't write an autobiography as such, but he did write a biography. 
Dusty Baker, he should be in the Hall of Fame. He went, If he win, uh, uh, you know how black people are. The Houston Astros was cheating last year, so therefore they said, you know what, get a black man to fix it. So they went and got Dusty Baker, 70 years old. This is actually, he grew up in California. This is his autobiography, Kiss the Sky. I love this. My weekend in Monterey at the greatest concert ever. He was with Jimi Hendrix out there at Otis Redding and them by Dusty Baker. I love Dusty Baker. I hope, man, one day, I don't know if you've ever interviewed him, Karen. I would love to hear you talking to Dusty Baker. This brother here. Oh, he's that? Okay. I yeah, Kiss the Sky. Because everybody. Hendrix. Hendrix, is, Hendrix was at the, at the concert. But he talks about growing up. Here he is. There's Dusty Baker. Y'all know. Mm -hmm. Stop thinking about these black people as only athletes. You know what I'm saying? Dusty Baker, blues fan, three-time manager of the year. I mean, anyway, shout out to Dusty Baker because it's time. In fact, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, Karen. I know we got to go. So I know you got, because like I say, you got to get it loaded. We, man, we have to do something about this thing. Ty Burroughs, our friend Ty Burroughs on faculty at Seton Hall. I know he tweeted us about that Superman versus the Klan. People might not know. This is the three-volume Superman smashes the Klan. This is written by, this is written, this actually just came out last year. It is actually a riff on the 1940s radio uh, special, Superman versus the Klan, that Dr. Burroughs was talking about. The reason I raise it is because the guy who wrote this, uh, wrote these three, uh, Gene Luang Yang, is Chinese American because he also wrote the DC series. They created a Chinese Superman a couple of years ago. And so this is written by a Chinese dude who is making the, the, the people that the Klan terrorized a Chinese family. Because what is clear is, oh, by the way, Superman, Yang says he was basically a golem. Those of you who know Jewish culture knows what that means. Meaning what? Superman versus the Klan in the 40s was really, Superman is really conceived, comes out of Jewish, the, the creative mind of, some, of Jewish comic artists. In part, he's like an avenging angel of sorts. And this is how you assimilate into American culture. But Yang, Chinese American, is reading him, he was like a golem. Superman is a revenge dude. So he's fighting the Klan, and Yang finally makes him Chinese. Also, well, anyway, we'll have to talk about that another time, because there's, a, there's an alternative cover that was done by a Black comic book artist, but that's a whole nother uh, conversation for well, another day. We, we don't have any bounds. We're going to drop it in next week, and let me thank uh, yes. Dr. Burroughs dropping that in too. Yeah, thanks, Dr. You know, Burroughs. You know, maybe the two of us, because everybody's always making, you know, why don't you talk to this one to talk to that? We, we're going to drop everybody in through yes. these conversations. People get, you know, so y'all are all contributors. You know, everybody's yes. contributing to this, this experiment that has turned into a thing. And so, yeah, thank yes. you, Dr. Burroughs. Thank and we're going to keep this going. All right. Have a great day. You everybody, too. Love you. Love you. Thank Be you. Be safe. I'll see you.